GM the listener and welcome to the Metacast Crypto Corner brought to you by Navic. I'm your host, Nicola Vreke or Nico for short. And today I'm joined by two of my colleagues. We're bringing the Bitcraft crypto chats on air. I have Carlos Pereira and Jamie Wallace. And today we're continuing our discussion on Ronin Hack. So some new advancements there, uh, giving our thoughts and opinions and basically telling you what happened. Then we're touching upon Web3 gaming business models. So uh, traditional business models are, um, you know, are what disrupted. There, there are new business models that emerge when you combine blockchain with games. And so we're going to be giving our thoughts on those. And then finally, uh, if we find the time, because some of these discussions have tended to be quite long, we're going to go into the future of Web3 gaming economies. Before that, who are we? So. My name is Nico. I, next to hosting this podcast, mainly um, work as an investor at Bitcraft Ventures on the crypto team with the two others on the podcast. Um, Carlos, what about you? Hey, everyone. I'm Carlos. I'm part of the investments team at Bitcraft, most specifically focused on the crypto fund. Um, I come from a background in traditional finance, growth equity and private equity and private credit. Uh, worked at a $40 billion asset manager before, um, deployed a bunch of capital across diversified asset classes, started focusing on um, gaming in 2018, um, scale a portfolio of Series Seed through growth assets, um, then spent a year in a portfolio company that was in both my portfolio and Bitcraft's portfolio as their uh, head of strategy. Um, and then coming out of that experience, uh, really wanted to go back to be an investor and came to Bitcraft, um, initially focused on the creator economy, game studios, uh, platform and tech, things basically connected to my previous experience as an investor, um, quickly fell down the crypto rabbit hole um, and have been spending most of my time there since last year. That's great. And so working with Carlos has taught me that I still have a lot to learn about the whole investing spiel. Um, so I'm glad to have you on again. And then we have Jamie. Hey guys, yeah. So I've been uh, in the in the crypto space since 2017. Um, really, kind of got deep into it about just over a year ago. Started a, a research firm called Block 49 Capital with a with a buddy in the space. We use that as kind of like an intro to explore, learn about the space, document kind of our our journey into the space. Um, then kind of expanded to to being kind of like a DJ and just exploring the space for for a year. Kind of you know getting rugged all over the place, uh, playing with NFTs, had my own Axie Guild, kind of explored DeFi, everything, and then eventually found my home uh, at Bitcraft. So I joined Bitcraft about six months ago, mainly focusing on crypto Web3 investments. So it's been awesome getting to work with uh, Nico and Carlos. Cool, man. Welcome. And um, you are the first one who calls himself a DGen on my podcast, which means I'm think I'm getting the wrong people on my show, man. Uh, we need more DGENs here because uh, <laughs> they're the ones who, who truly understand, you know, what this technology and what it can do to games. Um, cool. So Sky Mavis hack, who of you had bags on Sky Mavis? Yeah, I still had uh, a bunch of uh, Axies, SLP and, and some ETH and stuff for my, uh, for my, when I was running my guild. So uh, yeah, that's, uh, but yeah. But in the end, it, it all turned out fine. Were you nervous before the, the news? Um, not particularly, I think, um, yeah, just kind of having that ecosystem ready to, to whip up the guild eventually. But, uh, no, I think, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't a, a ton of money. Uh, mm -hmm. you, Carlos, you were, you were safe. Um, I have no bags in it or had no bags in it. I've been focused on losing my money elsewhere. Uh, nice. That's smart. <laughs> Good one. So what is the news? Uh, so Sky Mavis recently raised or announced that they raised $150 million led by Binance with participation from Andreessen Horowitz, Dialectic and Paradigm. 
Um, and so those newly freshly raised funds together with the SkyMavis and the Axie balance sheets will be used to reimburse all of the users affected by the hack. Um, yeah. Like what were your thoughts when you, when you heard about that? Um, Carlos, what did you think? Um, I, I thought it was interesting. I thought it was to, to a large extent expected, um, given the success of Axie, given the excitement that has been going on recently about, um, Ronin, you know, Ronin went from being, a a proprietary product to being now um, a choice of chain, or at least a lot of people talking about the idea of building on Ronin as it becomes more possible, right? And so very quickly emerging as a as a viable layer for a lot of projects. And so it, it makes sense that people would want to jump on board um, to save it. Um, I wish I had more perspective to do a comparative analysis between the wormhole hack and, and how that was solved right from the perspective of the investors and the Axie hack. Because it seemed like in that case, the, the the money that was funded by the investors was very similar to the funds that were um, stolen versus ha um, Axie being like a $650 million hack and they've raised $150 million. And mm -hmm. I'm, I'm still quite ignorant on how exactly everyone's getting paid back and how the structure works. Um, but I'm assuming that that given the quality of the investors around it, that if that's the number that they've chosen, that there's a, a plan really um, on under collateralization and, and how to address it. Mm-hmm. Your thoughts, Jamie? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a strong signal, similar to kind of the wormhole thing with Jump stepping in. I think um, all these kind of, you know, uh, great. Sorry, J sorry to interrupt you, Jamie. Maybe can you still uh, quickly touch upon the wormhole thing? Because I think a lot of our listeners don't know what happened there. Yeah, so basically um, a couple months ago, uh, wormhole got exploited. It was like a similar kind of scenario bridge between uh, ETH and Solana. Someone managed to basically drain all the all the ETH um, on Solana, bring it back to kind of ETH mainnet and sell it. So effectively, all the ETH and, and USDC, I believe it was, on Solana was effectively backed by by nothing. It was just, mm -hmm. you know, funny money on Solana. But um, uh, Jump quickly, uh, quickly, you know, patched the the bridge and, and restored all the funds um, and, you know, backed all the all the ETH and stuff. So it's kind of a similar scenario where, where Ronan got exploited. Mm -hmm. I, think, I think it just goes a testament to kind of the... Uh, you know, the promise of, of Ronin and kind of the ecosystem Axie's built, having kind of those investors uh, step in basically overnight and and supply the capital, I think is a, a strong indicator of just kind of their um, support for the ecosystem as a whole. And um, yeah, I think overall um, bullish hack. Mm -hmm. I think, um, so I'm now looking at the, a bit of the, the exact um, division of funds. So it's a good question that, that, um, Carlos touched upon. So they raise, so they lose 625 million, right? Uh, about 600 million ETH, 25 million in USDC. They raise 150 million and they raise, um, and they use that in combination with the balance sheet of, as of Sky Mavis and Axie, uh, to reimburse the users affected by the hack because, um, 5,000, no, 56,000 ETH that were um, essentially owned by the Axie DAO. And so the Axie DAO treasury is the treasury where all of the fees accrue. Um, so there was uh, 56,000 ETH in there, which is a little bit less than 200 million uh, US dollars. Those will remain under collateralized. So um, just to get to, to, to math this out, there was 425 million who was backed by one, the freshly raised funds, then the Sky Mavis and the Axie balance sheet. So these are the users funds and then the Axie DAO, the treasury DAO fund will remain under collateralized um, for, for the like value of 200 million uh, US dollars. What are your thoughts there? What do you think, Carlos? 
I think when you have products that have so much volatility, um, as is the case with much of crypto, um, volatility creates peaks and troughs and confidence. Um, and I think you're probably going through this trough and confidence now. And the question becomes, mm-hmm. um, how long can you sustain it there while mm. b- basically until you have to, to plug the hole one way or another um, to, to gain the, commu- the the trust of your community back, right? Or, to, or to, to make sure that people look at you as a sound product um, and not as something that's a work in progress solution that people are still waiting for the other shoe to drop on or for the solution to come for, right? So it strikes me as a short-term solution, um, but but I wouldn't expect, I certainly wouldn't hope for the outcome to this, uh, of this being something that, that is left perpetually uncollateralized. I think it's natural that in choosing which side to, to be under collateralized um, or which hole they couldn't immediately plug, that the hole that wasn't plugged was on the Axie DAO. Um, given the importance of of backing the consumers or the customers that lost money in the hack first and foremost, right? It doesn't strike me as a Mm -hmm. Mm long-term solution um, that can go, well, it doesn't strike me that they can go without a long-term solution because it shouldn't be, um, it shouldn't be under collateralized over the long-term. I think that when you're trying to build these ecosystems, they are um, a function of trust, the same way that fiat ecosystems are much more a function of trust than the backing. Um, so there is space for you to be under collateralized in certain situations if you have high trust of the community. Yeah, and it seems like the market agrees with you. I'm uh, I'm looking at the Axie Infinity charts, and so Axie Infinity, the token is essentially, um, you know, a a ownership token, uh, a fractionalized ownership of the treasury of Axie Infinity, um, and that seems to not have budged anything. You know, at least not in comparison to the rest of the crypto market, because that's not going too hot right now. Um, yeah, uh, surprising to you, Jamie? Um, I mean, I think I think realistically, uh, just judging by kind of some of the on chain, uh, I did some on chain sleuthing of kind of the of like the the hackers funds and stuff. And, you know, he's interacted with some KYC exchanges and stuff like that. So I know that process takes quite a long time, but, um, you know, it does seem like pretty likely that at least some of the funds will be will be recovered in the end. So I think kind of the the way they did it to under collateralize the treasury made a lot of sense. I mean, uh, realistically, you got to get the the consumers and the public uh, their funds back as quick as possible. But something like mm-hmm. the treasury, realistically, they probably weren't going to deploy that um, additional capital for the next kind of few years. So if it kind of takes you know six to twelve months to get access to those funds back. Um, then they're able to, you know, it's not a huge deal. So um, I think it was kind of the right move. Um, I'm not too worried in the long term. Uh, I think realistically they'll be able to recover some of the funds, but we'll see. But ultimately, um, I think that's maybe probably why the, the market might have not reacted as negatively as you think is mm-hmm. is the market probably assumes like those funds realistically probably wouldn't have been touched anyways in kind of the next six to 12 months. So they'll kind of be able to, to Hopefully, recover the funds, replenish, and recollateralize the the treasury. So that that'd be my kind of two cents around that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and some what I've seen quite a lot on Twitter and, and on LinkedIn, and especially from people who are more from the traditional um, gaming space, is that they they consider um, the blockchain. So they realize that the blockchain is not really anonymous, um, and you can actually trace where funds go. And they think that there's no way in which the thieves, the hackers, can actually wash or you know make sure that they can actually use these um, the funds that they've stolen. Um, 
Is that true? Is there no way to anonymously, you know, use those funds? Jamie, you want to you want to go into that and perhaps talk a bit about you know Tornado Cash and, and other uh, solutions like that. Yeah, I mean, I think I think now it, it's pretty tricky just with the amount of people who actually like have their eyes on the chain and the amount of kind of solutions um, that people have to be able to like track funds back. We saw with. Uh, I think I can't remember the name of the exchange that that got hacked way back in the day, but that report that the that the the Fed ultimately released, I think it was that kind of detailed how they went about tracing um, the the tra- and just kind of goes to show like how like the blockchain, there's a paper trail, so nothing's really hidden, and if someone wants to to find it, they likely they likely can. Um, obviously, there's stuff like Tornado Cash, where basically the way it works is is you would submit a transaction into like a pool and you'd use kind of like a consistent number. So something like 100 ETH or something. And then uh, basically you would wait a certain amount of period before that pool would kind of spit the money out to a fresh wallet. So basically, ideally, the longer you the longer your money's kind of in the pool, the, the basically the harder it is to kind of track when it went out, when it went in. Um, mm-hmm. So that's kind of been a popular tool. But obviously, I think uh, now I think people are doing a lot of IP tracking around the tornado cache and there's like a, a ton of other vectors where you're able to kind of like catch people. So I think it's getting increasingly harder and harder. And, you know, if someone were to pull off a, a heist like that, you would kind of really need to have it planned and, and really have to have a strong exit strategy. And I think I think you'd struggle to find anywhere, you know, with $600 million to be able to exit. So obviously you can, uh, you can keep all your riches on chain, but eventually realistically how far does that get you um so yeah i think it's uh it's pretty tough now i'd say to be able to to pull off these exploits we've seen kind of the majority of them uh end up getting reimbursed or the hacker just returns the funds because uh you know they have them they have them trapped mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah let's keep our fingers crossed then um i think the dominant strategy is for for hacking and things like this is to just go from black hat to white hat return the money and pick up the mm-hmm. bounty right like even like I don't know how much you could get offered on six hundred mil, but I assume you could get offered ten percent of that, right? And it's like that's ten percent clean money that you walk away mm-hmm. with no issue, right? And so um, yeah, it just seems like trying to actually steal and launder and all that stuff um, is uh, is negative EV versus just returning it and picking up a fat bounty. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, let's see what the hacker does, but. Um... I think you know walking away with a free and clean sixty million seems like a pretty decent deal. Um, yeah, so uh, let's see what happens. Um, and in other news, in the same um, you know discussion, um, Sky Mavis seems to have learned a bit of a lesson. In in the previous episode, we discussed and we said that they had nine validator nodes, of which five were compromised. Um, and they now are planning to increase their validator node, node count to 21, which would mean that it's it's harder to hack. Um, with a few new additions, we have Delphi, our friends there, and Emoka Brands will also become a validator. Then we have Dialectic, who participated in the round. And Dialectic, by the way, is, I've looked it up, uh, a Swiss, like a very modern family office um, that is investing strongly in, in, in the digital asset space. And then um, Nansen, who is the, you know, the the uh, the on-chain uh, data solution, and then Stablenode, who uh, so, so who does validator nodes for Bitcoin already. So they're also a new validator. Again, I guess to be expected, right? Um, to be expected. Um, although it seems like less than the um, the issue of it being nine versus twenty-one validators, it was the fact that five of them were under their control, and um, it mm-hmm. you know they said it was a. Uh, 
a social engineering hack, right? Um, so mm-hmm. it seems like even if if you had those same nine, but it was two or three with them, or even the same five, mm-hmm. and and I guess better security around. However, it was a social engineering thing that happened, right? Um, so yeah, good. More the the more decentralized, the better, right? Uh, of course, following the blockchain trilemma. Um, but it, it looks like there's also just a simpler um, step here, which would have been even in the same number, um, have uh, have them more distributed. Yeah, I agree. Um, and then finally, another news origin got live either today or yesterday or something. So the new um, new game, free to play completely, um, is live in early access. Um, I mean, I haven't tried it. I don't think you guys have tried it or, or seen anything gameplay. Um, First feedback looked okay, but um, in a few weeks I'll have Philip La on, who's uh, the new game lead at Sky Mavis, and then uh, I can I can dive into that. Um, so yeah, let's uh, let's talk about our second topic, which is the Web three gaming business models. So essentially, um, I sat down and you know often I've talked to quite a lot of gaming companies that pitched, um, and I've thought about the new monetization ways that blockchain allows for. Um, and I've made like a little, little distinction. Um, so yeah, let's go through it. And then I'd, I'd love to have your take on this if you guys agree. So the first, um, way that these new web three games will monetize, uh, first way is through direct sales. Um, this is, you know, similar as was before, um, in, in non blockchain games. So first one is through traditional in-app purchases. So in these games, you'll be able to purchase items. These could be on-chain items, off-chain items, booster packs, these kind of things. Um, so that's, that's, um, you know, that's one way of direct sales. And then the next direct sales revenue model is through NFTs. Um, and so these, you know, these is what we see through, um, initial releases of a lot of gaming projects where they sell a bunch of NFTs before beforehand. Um, Pixelmon comes to mind, you know, and, and that's a heap of trash, a burning heap of trash. Um, so that's, you know, that's the first way that these companies make money. Next way is uh, what we see more and more, and it is uh, trading fees. Um, and actually there's three types of trading fees that I think we'll see moving forward with these, you know, blockchain games. First one is direct trading fees, trading fees through the marketplace. So that's, for example, what's happening within, uh, with on Ronin, in, within the Sky Mavis um, ecosystem. So if you trade axes, you pay, and I believe it is 4.25% um, of the sales price gets um, extracted and goes towards the Axie treasury. Um, so that's the direct trading fees. Then you also have indirect trading fees, fees through royalties. And so um, let's say you want to trade um, an NFT. You don't want to trade it in the marketplace of the game, but you want to trade it somewhere else. Uh, on OpenSea, for example, um, usually NFTs have a kind of royalty attached to them um, where you still pay a certain percentage fee of the trading costs to the um, initial creator of the of the asset. Um, and then finally, and Jamie, I'd like your thoughts on this as well, is, um, and actually in our discussion that we had yesterday or two days ago, um, you, you brought this to my mind, which is um, blockchains owning their own, um, well, no, sorry, gaming companies owning their own blockchains and everything that happens within their ecosystem, uh, they would get, you know, revenues from um, you know, every single thing that happens on chain. And I think the best example of this uh, fitting with our first uh, topic that we discussed is Ronin, right? Sky Mavis decided to launch Ronin, their own blockchain, um, and they owned the the token or the coin of that chain, which means that in the future for every transaction that happens on the Ronin blockchain, Sky Mavis would actually make some money. Um, and I thought, because we don't expect, um, at least I don't expect every 
blockchain gaming company to um, launch their own blockchain. But there is a concept called subnets on Avalanche, which actually provides for this functionality. Jamie, you want, you want to elaborate a bit, a bit on that? Yeah, basically at like a high level, basically these subnets kind of allow you to stay stay within the, the standards of the kind of underlying ecosystem, obviously have your own security validator set, but be able to kind of have that easy um, trustless bridge and composability with kind of the regular, be able to tap into the liquidity from the main net, but also be able to, you know, have your, you know, your game token as your kind of validator token. So all transactions you know, you require that token. So it adds kind of like, like a key sync to the entire ecosystem, which I think is important. Um, and also lets you kind of fine tune parameters and stuff of the chain. So depending on kind of what your game needs, you're able to kind of uh, go for, for shorter block times, longer block times, whatever. We, we've seen this kind of be the same with with Atom, uh, with Cosmos and that ecosystem with kind of, you know, all these, all these kind of sub chains. Um, being popped up and you know we've seen uh defi kingdoms and i think ragnarok as well will be kind of deploying on those subnets so that'll be a kind of interesting case study but i think something to keep an eye on for for games uh as they launch because it could be an interesting uh way to have that kind of control that games want with uh with kind of staying somewhat within that public blockchain uh and and you know adhering to those kind of open standards which lean into like the interoperability and composability which kind of make these games so special mm-hmm yeah, I um a few weeks or a few months by now ago we had people from Krabata on the podcast. Oh yeah, they're, and I they're think the, they were they're the other one that's doing the subnet. Yeah, yeah, um, and and they were very excited about that. Um, a subnet on Avalanche where you can you know mess around with crabs, um, if if that's your thing. Um, I was curious to to see them like the what kind of animals they bring up now, um, and then finally the uh the third way and i think the most innovative way in which i see gaming or uh, web3 gaming companies innovate is going to be through um value accrual of their token so um you know if you design a game in such a way that through an increase in player base and an increase in engagement the utility and the need for the token and the demand for the token actually increase you can actually build a business on top of a you know increase in in the the value of your token where you know over time you can say okay every month maybe we sell a certain supply of our tokens and that will then provide you know enough cash flow um in fiat terms to you know pay the bills um pay salaries etc um but where there is no necessarily fees taken anywhere um obviously this is all you know all of these different business models are um not exclusive like um what is the term i'm looking for uh, cumulative, cumulatively exclusive, so they they can overlap, obviously. And I think the most successful blockchain games or the ones with the highest revenue will take a combination of these three. Um, but um, it's it's something interesting to think about, in my opinion, at least, because it throws away all of the traditional measures of um, you know how much money, how much cash flow do you have, how much money is coming in when you're trying to make money on or or just trying to maximize the value of of your token. Um, Carlos, with your you know, traditional financial background, what, what do you think uh, uh, about this? Um, I'm going to try reorganizing some of your definitions. Um, Please do, and Thanks. see if I can <laughs> if I can run a, a model of it. I think at a first level, you're either going to sell assets or services in games. Today, we live in primarily a asset driven digital asset, but an asset driven model. 
Um, we have some attempts at services, although those services are generally done outside of the game. For example, paying a professional to um, to carry you in a match or something like that, right? So there is a services ecosystem and there's an asset ecosystem. That asset ecosystem can be paid for with cash, um, fiat, whatever, right? Um, and in crypto, they're traditionally be, or they're more and more being paid with tokens, right? And so it's the swap of your C20s for your C721s, generally speaking, or, or you know, if you're out in a non-EVM system, something else. So the fact that, so if we, if we just to go into the next layer, right, let's focus on asset sales. Um, when you are selling an asset with a token, then that opens another opportunity or another um, place to look at revenue, right? So on the transaction, who is processing that transaction and who is enabling the ecosystem in which those transactions are happening. Um, so that opens up the opportunity for paying a fee to whoever is operating that ecosystem and paying a fee to um, asset creators, especially uh, to the extent that we're talking about secondary markets and reselling assets, right? So it's either a primary payment to the creator of the asset or a primary payment to the, the or like a, pay, a direct payment to the next holder of the asset plus a secondary royalty to the original creator of the asset. To the extent that you're paying those with tokens, you create positive um, buy pressure on the tokens or you reduce sell pressure on the tokens. Either way, right? People need to use the tokens to pay for the game or to pay for the asset. And to the extent that the games are holding a lot of tokens in their own treasuries, their own tokens in their own treasuries, you receive investment income or balance sheet um, accrual from the fact that your tokens are going up in value, right? And so that leads into the third place that you touched. Um, ultimately, I think that the model of a good game is to be less a game and more a government, um, meaning that you are enabling an ecosystem, an economical ecosystem, and facilitating the velocity of capital through different transactions and different uses for your currency. And then taxing those currencies, both with explicit fees that relate to your reward for setting up that ecosystem and making sure that you're paying whoever has to get paid. Um, and you're also getting paid as an early stage investor in the formulation of that ecosystem because you're the main holder of the currency, especially early on before these things are fully decentralized. As the main holder of the currency, as your currency gains more and more adoption and you have an influx, the influx of capital into your system uh, creates accretion of, of token prices. And, and, and again, right, like goes to the balance sheet, right? So for me, it's assets or services. Then you look at how those assets or services are being paid for. You're ideally getting them paid for via tokens. And then the tokens monetize or the tokens accrue to the balance sheet, plus the explicit fees that should be charged in order to enable that economic ecosystem. It's probably how I try to break it down. I don't know if that made mm. sense. Could you follow that, Jamie? Yeah, so I think I think I think Carlos did a good job touching on kind of the, the way I see it too. I think fundamentally, like what the blockchain ultimately allows is for us to like digitally enforce scarcity and ownership, which I think has kind of been something you know for the history of the internet for whatever we haven't been able to like you're not able to like enforce you know how scarce something is. You're not able to enforce if someone like truly owns something. So now that we kind of have those two like primitives, it allows us to really form the foundation of like how we would have economies work in the real world, but like digitally. And then I think, you know, uh, with that, with gaming. So you have kind of these ecosystems, like Carlos said, and it's kind of like, it's different from web two gaming in the sense that, you know, it's not like a, 
you know, uh, the, the game studio kind of extracting from the player. It's, you know, the game studio facilitating transactions between, you know, different aspects, different player types. And I think kind of the, the fundamental flaw, I think, with, with or the, I guess, common misconception of blockchain um, gaming is that it's like a, a super positive sum game. You know, when effectively the way I see kind of traditional game is like, um, like from a financial perspective, not necessarily from like a, a fun, however you want to value that, but a relatively kind of negative sum game where, you know, the players put money in um, and they're not really getting anything back. Um, whereas kind of the way I see blockchain gaming is like a slightly negative sum game. And that's because kind of the, the developers let the players uh, take a lot more of the upside and actually enjoy kind of the benefits of the economy. So, you know, rather than you know, a player, for example, a whale who they just want to put money into the game. They don't want to take any money out. They just want to play the game instead of, you know, paying money to the dev studio for items, resources, whatever. They might pay it to a player who's, you know, spent time going through the game and stuff like that. And in turn, kind of the developer benefits by kind of benefiting almost like a tax, like transaction fees on those networks. So really the goal of the developer is to be able to create these, um, economies that that almost resemble kind of the real world economy where you know people are interacting transacting there's kind of different stakeholders there's people who they want to put money into the system and not necessarily and they want to take like fun out not necessarily like actual dollars and then there's people who might you know they want to put a lot of time in and want to actually like take money out and being able to kind of create a game an ecosystem where both those sides are balanced and obviously kind of the the, the dev studio is able to um almost act as like the government, as Carlos puts it, and uh, effectively tax it in a way and tax those transactions. And I think we always talk about this, Nico. It's like, it's a fundamental shift where it might not appear from like a, you know, from like a, an early look, like it might be a better business model for the game studios. But I think the thing that people often consider is like, it's a way better player experience. And I think once kind of high quality games that, that kind of satisfy the fun aspect of players, uh, like the fun that players have playing games. Once these kind of come into these blockchain games, I think players will just realize that it's just a far better experience for them as a player. Like they're not being extracted as much. They're able to create value. They're able to like, just be like a bigger ownership of the network in the game. And I think it'll be really tough for kind of web two games to compete just with the web three business model because it's so much more player friendly. And, and that kind of turns into it because like the players own more more of the network they're more incentivized to be part of the network i think there's like a stronger willingness to kind of pay and we've kind of seen this with just like the propensity to spend per user is like a lot higher in blockchain based games and like we always talk about nico is like because you let everyone kind of have a piece of the pie in these games and networks like the pie just gets way bigger and you know we've seen stuff like axie where only two million daus and you know it got to you know did like a billion dollars in revenue. And I think that's a large part of like the power of these, these web three networks. Um, you know, and I think ultimately like as the, the game quality gets there, I think the players will, will get there too. It's just like, it's a far better player experience. And just the whole ethos of it is kind of like what I think will be the ultimate driver and web two games might be able to compete with, with arguably like better business models, but the, the just the player experience, like they won't be able to compete with. Um, so that's kind of the way I see it ultimately. Uh, Mm -hmm. That's awesome. And it made me think of something. So one of the um, comments that I often get from traditional game developers when I'm, when we're talking about open economies and allowing people to, um, you know, just use cold hard cash to get an advantage within a game. Um, one example that they often bring up is the Diablo 3 auction house. Uh, 
the real money auction house were um, that essentially killed the game and that they had to get out of the game uh, quite fast. Um, and so, you know, my so what I think is that um, the the reason that failed is because the game was not designed with an open economy in mind. And, you know, part of that game and, and of the core game loop was about grinding to get better gear. And, you know, if you could immediately buy the better gear, then, you know, the grinding wasn't there. And so the the, the core game loop wasn't there. And so um, I think that, you know, I think many games, um, you know, all else being equal, will benefit from a, a blockchain integration, as you say, Jamie, um, you know, players that have the choice between one game and the other, if they're similar in fun, where one in, in one they actually own and they feel like they have any ownership uh, or any type of ownership within the game, um, they'll always choose that one over the one where it's, you know, in traditional Web2 sense, um, where everything is, is still owned by the, the game developer or the studio itself. Um, but I also think that, um, you know, what what blockchain technology does, it, it, it allows for, you know, real value transfer over the internet, right? And so... What I'm trying to say is that I think that some games like Diablo 3 actually might not benefit from being fully open. And so I think, you know, open economies work well when it's designed for an open economy. But I can also see some games actually benefiting from remaining uh, closed um, just by the way the, the way of their design. Um, thoughts? Go ahead, Jane. Okay. Um Making successful countries is hard, right? Like, I mean, how many successful, open, globalized economies? Like, even globalization in a, in a broader sense is a, is a trend that's coming under increased pressure. Openness is difficult to create. Um, mm -hmm. You know, as you guys know, um, we tend to, to have a, a skew in our portfolio towards teams that come from gaming um, because we think that creating a successful game, successful fun loop, um, is harder than necessarily creating a token, right? Like a lot of what's fun and, and, and crazy and awesome about crypto is how easy it is actually to create tokens, right? Um, however, um, we don't simply invest in things where someone says, hey, I have a great game that I've been developing for three years and I decided to put a token on it and let me slap a token on it because the, the consequences of running a design, an open economy design, and telling your players that they can make money and spend money in, in, a, in a much more expansive way. Those are design constraints that have to be factored in to how you design the game, right? Like an openness of economy is a design constraint to the game loop. Um, and so for that reason, we tend to demand that teams know both the crypto and the gaming side a lot. It's just that it will skew a little bit, call it 70-30, probably something like that to the crypto side. Um, so I don't even know if I believe that the, that most games will benefit from an open economy. Um, I think that in a world where these economies are open, um, network effects are going to matter even more. Um, the strength of your tokenomics, the ability of you using your token to incentivize um, a more complex labor market that creates a different um, different job opportunities in your slice of the metaverse. Um, I think all of those things um, are hard. And what we'll likely see is actually a higher fail rate of game studios and of games um, and an increase in the power laws that accrue to the best games that make it in crypto, right? And so um, I certainly expect the world forward to be one where the most successful games are the ones that are that are the most rewarding to the players and to the community um, and in, in a way that is even more concentrated than we have today in Web2 insofar as talking about open, open world economies or open economy um, virtual mm -hmm. worlds are concerned. 
Great takes. Jamie? Yeah, I, I, I fully agree with Carlos there. I think ultimately in terms of like the, the fun aspect, you have to look at these things. Like, like I said earlier, like these aren't like insanely positive some you know, games or ecosystems, like you're not just going to be able to come in, extract a bunch of money. Like ultimately, like that money is going to have to come from somewhere. Like where does it come from? It comes from other players who want to put value into the game have, and take fun out and not necessarily take the financial measures. So I think kind of like as we look at games, that's one of the most, um, you know, the biggest perspectives. Uh, and and I agree with you. I don't think all, all these blockchain games are going to be open economies. I think that obviously adds like a certain degree of complexity that a lot of games just, I just don't think have the depth to be able to handle. Um, and like, you know, so I think kind of like the, the MMOs and stuff will have a, a much easier time kind of designing like these open economies that kind of interact. I also think it'll be important to, for game designers to be able to try and separate as a, you know, kind of the, the game economy from the open economy and be able to kind of like separate those loops and have players that just want to engage with either and kind of not really, uh, if I just want to play the game, the open economy aspect shouldn't like fundamentally interrupt my game process. Um, and then with that, I kind of think, I agree with Carlos. I just think with the with the financial um, incentive and alignment that these games create, being able to own your assets, I think the switching costs for games are going to be a lot higher. And you're going to see a lot of players who are significantly like way more invested in games because in a lot of times, you know, they're going to own assets. They're going to feel like they own the game. They can actually, there's like, there's like this aura about NFTs. I think that, you know, just like, it just feels a lot different than like, you know, traditional kind of like in-game assets. Like you just feel that it's weird to explain to someone who probably uh, doesn't know what NFTs are, but like when you actually like have been able to trade these things and, and put them on marketplaces and you kind of like, you get that like sense of ownership. It's really quite special. And I think, um, like Carlos said, I think for a lot of genres, like they might only have a couple games that are kind of, you know, have, have sufficient economies and player depth, just because if I'm a player, I've invested thousands of dollars or I've like, you know, earned thousands of dollars of items through playing the game. Like I'm not, I'm just not going to switch to the new game just like that. Right. I'm like invested in these games. Whereas I think on like mobile games, it's really easy for me to download a game, not really like it. Um, and then just quickly switch to the next one, right? So I think we will see kind of value and liquidity um, kind of aggregate to kind of the, the top games in the space. And I think um, because of that, we'll see like a lot less, I think the dispersion in terms of like, I think player liquidity will be a bit more concentrated compared to, to Web2 per se. Um, so, yeah. Interesting. I think I agree with that, um, but... I can also imagine a future, and I think I mean, these will coexist. Um, and I think this, what, I, what I'm going to talk about, will definitely exist over time. It is, you know, let's say you're playing one game, and you so you have within that game universe, you have, you know, your your gear, your characters, all NFTs, um, maybe like a horse and, and and a lot of fungible tokens, resources, etc. Um, and then you can, you know, you're going to go to another game another game universe you're going to sign it with your wallets and the game is going to say look if you just ditch all of the assets that you've accrued within this other game you just click one button and we give you you know 70,000 of our fungible tokens and you'll be able to do whatever you want and you know on top of that we'll give you one land plot for free so you can start building your farm you know it took completely different types of games but because of we're because we're talking on blockchain everything is open everything is visible um i can definitely see something like that exist where Although I agree that through the, you know, the the emotional uh, bond you create with the assets that are truly yours and something you might have grinded for, um, but because everything is so open and so easily uh, interchangeable and, and sellable, etc., um, it might just also be easier to start a new game. I think um, I think uh, someone should propose a concept of a game that's called um, Vampire Attack. 
Um, and uh, it's a, it's a, a middle-age MMO, humans versus vampires. And the way that the game bootstraps liquidity is just by vampire attacking all the assets in every other game and just uh, doing it that way. It all. If you're building this, Carlos at bitcraft.vc, send <laughs> bitch, a deck. Bitch, and... I, yeah, send, send us pitches for vampire <laughs> attack the MMO. It'll be uh, it'll be interesting actually because you know now with kind of all this blockchain tech and the fact that everything's built on these open standards, like you'd be able to actually see you know if you wanted to say you're building a competitor game to let's say uh, you know you're building like a competitor MMO game, you know you could easily just go and be like, okay, we're just going to airdrop you know every person like who has significant assets in, in this competitor game, we're just going to be able to airdrop them like the starting items they need. And then, you know, they're going to mm-hmm. come into their wallet one day. Oh, what's this? You know, and then they'll be like, oh, maybe if you come in, burn your other NF, burn the NFTs from this other game or sell, you'll, you'll, we'll buy them from you and we'll issue you tokens. It'll be really interesting. And I think kind of the meta, the meta, uh, the meta gameplay around how these games use kind of these open primitives to, uh, for user acquisition will be pretty will be pretty interesting. We see some cool stuff going on in in DeFi and NFT marketplaces, and I think uh, eventually, uh, I think gaming lags those primitives a bit. So I think we'll eventually see that kind of come in. With I wouldn't be surprised this year if there's a a game that ends up airdropping a, a ton of assets to an existing game. So mm-hmm. for every axie you own, you get a pixel mon. Yeah, boom, exactly. One of the one of the really ugly ones, which the Kev- pretty much the all Kevin's, the yeah. Kevin's, <laughs> the Kevin's, yeah. Oh man, it's going to be so interesting. I've 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 made the case. Um, so some people have asked me, like, you know, where do you think is is a big opportunity within this new blockchain gaming space? And I just think that you know, on like, there's so much data on the chain that I think like you can you can build an insane UA strategy just based on analyzing who like who bought what NFTs at what point, right? Are they people that are just there for the mint, or are they aping in when when things go up, um, etc. And I think. Um, yeah, if, if you build a strong um, analytics, uh, like on-chain analytics engine um, and, and, and infrastructure, I think, um, yeah, the, the, the insights you can get from there are, are going to be insane. I feel like the um, UA implications of uh, Web3 tech are underappreciated by a lot of people. I feel like a lot of the expectation of growth in Web3 um, that people are skeptical of growth. Like, I, look, the, the the growth rates that are baked into prices today are like insane, and they're certainly off in a lot of cases. Um, but in like on average, right across the whole set, I would say the difference between what skeptics think the growth rate is and what the growth rate will turn out to be will be off by more than an order of magnitude, simply because of a, a, a lack of understanding on the nuances of Web three distribution. Yeah, I agree. Um, all right. And then, um, yeah, so the, the last topic that I want to discuss and, and I just, I like this back and forth and we touched upon a bunch of things that I didn't plan on touching on. Um, and that's how I like it, um, is going to be the, the future of web three gaming economies. Uh, Carlos, you already used the words countries or, or nations when talking about, you know, the, the size of these games. Um, and like, I, I wonder like, I'd like to get your guys' thoughts on, you know, the magnitude of these things. Um, Axie already talks about the Axie Nation, I think uh, they're calling it. Um, and so, you know, right now we have about, what is it, 200 
ish countries um and i think you know each with or many of them which with their own currency um and i think we are quickly moving towards a world where we'll not have 200 countries but we'll have 200 you know traditional physical countries um but also a few thousand digital economies each with their own token uh, their own currency um their own planning, central planning, and this could be decided by people, this could be decided by algorithms. Um, do you agree with this view? Uh, is this something you see as well? Um, I don't know if the number is thousands because of the power loss point that we touched on earlier. Yeah. Um, but when I think about the um, major geopolitical trends that, that I'm personally focused on over the next, call it, decade, um, I think one of them is U.S. versus China versus crypto. Um, and insofar as crypto um, is concerned, I, I really think about the notion of these digital states, right? And there's a lot of people talking about this, like Sovereign Individual book. I mean, Balaji is talking about this stuff all the time. Um, mm -hmm. I think that the more time that we spend in digital environments... At, Technology is improving the quality of those digital environments. Like even, for example, being able to enforce scarcity and be able to own things and then VR and AR and all these things, you know, or even like just better hardware. But basically, the, 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 our existence in a virtual world keeps getting better and better. Um, while the existence in a physical world, um, for a lot of people, um, keeps getting worse or at best it's staying flat, Right. Um, and I think that there's a natural push, especially for younger generations that are more comfortable with the concept of living digital lives, um, to be spending more and more time in these worlds. Um, as these worlds grow more complex, I think that they develop um, a more robust labor market that allows for a broader range of individuals to be employed in the metaverse. Um, and with that, um, I think we start questioning um, the difference between our physical states and what they're doing for us in our lives, right? Like what we're paying taxes for and how much of our lives we're living digitally, right? And that causes friction between digital states or, or, or digital worlds and, and physical worlds because we're, we're spending most of our time digitally in these borderless states and still paying taxes in a very geographic way, right? And, and, and the dichotomy between like where we physically live, but like where we actually mentally live, right? Like where are our friends? Where are we spending our time? Where are we spending our money? Um, and so I certainly believe that um, in, in the broader crypto nations theme, and I think that the most organic place for those nations to emerge out of um, are successful games, in particular, good MMO RPGs. I think the closest examples that we have of things like these are games like EVE, um, even Second Life, right? Certainly not for me personally as a consumer, but for a lot of people who tried building colleges and made a life building homes and items and all of that, like that game for a while there especially had a very robust economy with um, a lot of different uh, labor roles, right? Um, and so um, it, when we study the the true phenomenon of play-to-earn gaming, right? Like not, not what we started calling a crypto last year, but but the fact that people have made money playing games for 10, 20 years now, um, it has tended to emerge out of complex MMOs, or at least like, like we can define complex in different ways, but out of deep MMOs. Um, and I think that the deeper that we allow those MMOs to become from the technological standpoint, and the more powerful we allow them to become from the economic standpoint with things like crypto tech, the more and more those places will aggregate significant, not just a significant amount of people, but a significant amount of people that are deeply invested in those economies and feel more attached to them 
than to the physical ones. Um, and so all this to say, like, yes, I am I am a fan of the the games as government's thesis. Um, I think it'll accrue to a very small number of, of places, just given the network effects of governments, right? Like the same way that, you know, Europe unified from a bunch of kingdoms into a handful of countries and generally countries consolidate. I think that virtual economies will consolidate and we won't have a thousand of them, but I think we'll have a few of them. I like how um, Carlos basically says exactly the same thing I do, but then uh, slightly more eloquent and uh, well thought out. So um, thanks for agreeing with me. <laughs> Jamie, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think just going back to my earlier point, like the, I think the, the one thing digital economies have been missing from, from like uh, for the past kind of like 10, 20, 30 years has been like like the actual ability to like enforce scarcity and ownership. Um, so I think now that kind of like blockchain allows us kind of those, those key primitives allows us to ultimately um, have the foundation like layer to be able to actually create economies that are, you know, pretty much identical to real world economies in terms of, you know, being able to exchange goods, transfer value. Um, and I think with that, gaming will be a, an interesting component of that because like Carlos said, with these complex deep MMOs, you will have them get to sizes where you'll have people who exclusively work and live and interact in these MMOs. And I know, I know that sounds pretty grim, but it's like just the reality is like um, a lot of people like there's a lot of stuff in the real world that just like isn't good. People are not happy. Like people deal with a lot of things. Like I think the the cool thing about like the metaverse and everything is like, you know, you don't get to pick how you like look or, or where you're born or kind of like how you grow up or like, you know, the the, the privilege you're, you're given. But, you know, in, in the metaverse, you're kind of given like infinite possibilities like you know, you could be you you could be super tall if you're if you're born super short, or you could be super big and strong if you're like weak and flimsy. Like it allows you so much. And, and as these kind of experiences get more and more real, and the tech kind of catches up with with uh, you know the real world, I, I think we'll see kind of these interesting like VR and just digital experiences where people are able to um, live the lives they want to live. But like you know, digitally. And um, I think a lot of people, especially as a generation like like mine that grew up in the digital world, we grew up like after school, hanging out with our friends in Minecraft and Call of Duty versus, you know, maybe at the park, I think it will resonate with them a lot more. And you'll see a lot more people willing to engage and, and spend the most, the most of their time in these, in these worlds. Um, and I think ultimately, like you said, you'll have these, these big game worlds kind of effectively emerge as like, you know, these giant nation states that are like driven by like a rich and diverse economic activity. I also think blockchain kind of gives people the coordination tools to be able to like, uh, you know, get together and coordinate and allocate capital and like permissionless and like trustless ways. So like I can get together with a group of people or like a community, you know, we can all like put together, we can all put money into a DAO. It could be run by like a multi-sig of people we trust and like, you know, or you're able to engage with like smart contracts and stuff where all you have to do is trust the code. You don't have to trust counterparties. So I see for me, like in a, in a more macro perspective, I actually see like um, in the long term, maybe like maybe like on a 50 plus year horizon, kind of like the dissolution of, of nation states into like smaller kind of um, I just think like, you know, I think people will realize that they govern more effective as like smaller entities um just like similarities are similar and i think kind of um blockchain allows the tools to you know 
not have to like trust kind of like big governments. People are going to realize that they can coordinate and govern them govern themselves uh, in their own ways. Uh, so it'll be pretty interesting to kind of see how that evolves. But completely agree on the uh, emergence of like kind of these big nation states and like it'll be pretty interesting. I, I can imagine uh, one day you go to the currency exchange and like one of the currencies is like you know uh, Eve's like in game currency or something. It'll be pretty uh, be pretty interesting to see how that all emerges. But um, mm-hmm. yeah. Love that. And then, you know, just to just keep within the trend of me spitting out ridiculous things, not very well informed and you guys, you know, explaining my own thoughts or maybe some corrections better explained. Um, I think, um, so fully agree with you guys. I think blockchain enables the emergence of um, very deep and open economies. Um, and so <clears throat> quite a lot um, when, I've, when I've talked about um, you know, play to earn, play and earn the whole concept of, of earning money while you play games. Um, gotten a lot of feedback uh, from mostly traditional gaming people saying that, you know, the moment you start earning, you're not having fun, so you can't play to earn. It doesn't work that way. Um, and so I think um, the way I see this evolve in the future is that um, one, the only place will where you will be um, earning a significant amount will be very deep economies with um, and this is one of my getting becoming one of my favorite terms, asymmetric gameplay. So there will be different gameplay loops. Um, and so these could be different gameplay gameplay loops within the same game, but these could also be uh, different gameplay loops each within their own game within the same um, universe, if that makes sense, right? Where within one universe with shared resources and assets, um, you know, your gameplay from one game which could be like a mining you know match three game will be um so the resources gathered there will then be able to be used within uh, a, a, a pvp uh, medieval combat style game or whatever right um and so um the case i want to make here is that i believe that the ways or the game loops that you'll be able or players will be able to use to actually make money in will not be fun so you will either be able to make money or you will be able to have fun, but not both. Or there will be a trade-off, right? The more fun a potentially revenue-generating activity becomes, the less you will be able to earn. And the less fun it becomes, the more grindy it is, the more you will be able to earn. Obviously, there are some people who you know like stuff that others don't, right? So there, there will be edge cases. But I think this is, in general, a trend that we'll see. Um, but would like, like love to hear your take or um, you know questions if, if, if I didn't explain myself well. Um, yeah. What do you think, Carlos? Yeah. All right, Jamie, go ahead. Yeah, no, I com- I completely agree. Um, I think ultimately, like, there's aspects of like these MMOs that like all of us played and, and grinded, and and ultimately, like, we didn't enjoy to a degree. Like, I remember just spending like hours on a weekend just fishing in RuneScape or chopping down wood, and and ultimately, it was like you know I grinded that thing because it was it was good to to get that item that I could then go out and, and have that fun gameplay experience. And I think what we'll see is, you know, there'll be a portion of the of the of the game population um, that kind of recognize, hey, there's people who want all this wood and want all these resources, but like, you know, they don't want to. They just want to have fun. They don't want to spend the time to to go and acquire them. Um, so I'm just going to go acquire them and then and then sell them. And that's kind of be the primary 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 driver of of economic activity within these games is kind of you know that imbalance of people who you know, they're there to have fun. Um, maybe they have got like, you know, lives in the physical world. They've got good jobs, stuff. They've got the money coming in from other areas where they're able to go into these games. You know, they hop on after a day of work. They're like, I don't want to spend eight hours getting the wood to be able to go on this raid with my friends. I'm just going to, you know, 
pay 50 bucks, get the resources and go in the same way people would go play like 50 bucks for a game of golf or something with their friends, right? And then you're going to have this other side of the equation where it's like, okay, people might be really good at this game or perhaps like job opportunities in their location aren't as aren't as like um, available and perhaps this is just a better opportunity and they're going to be like, you know, for me, this is way better than than washing cars for eight hours. You know, I go in, I'm chopping wood, I'm, I'm in this digital economy. I've got a really efficient process. My character's leveled up. I can do it. I can, I've got a competitive advantage compared to other players in a, in a way. Um, and you're able to kind of like leverage that. Uh, and I think ultimately like these MMOs, like you can look at them as games, but effectively they're just like economies. And, and like I said, I think, I think the common misconception is like there'll be an earning component to every game. I still think a lot of games, uh, don't have the depth to really facilitate those economies. And, and, you know, like I said, I think, I think those games, you know, can benefit from blockchain with like the NFTs and ownership and, and scarcity and stuff like that. But I think it's kind of like a shift away from like understanding as a game, like you don't necessarily have to have a, an earning element to it. Um, and kind of, you know, being able to, to leverage the, the primitives of blockchain to kind of like benefit your game style rather than kind of the current meta, which is like, you know, we're building a game with blockchain. It has to have an earning component. I think there's a lot of other avenues games can explore that that might not as explicitly involve kind of a, a an earning component to kind of the primary loop of the game, and and potentially those can effectively become secondary loops, which then can then be further incorporated. But I think kind of um, realistically, only a small subset of the games are really going to be able to support these kind of like huge economies and huge kind of like sustainable earning loops. So I think uh, once the game, the game kind of like shifts away from kind of like the need for everything to have an earning earning loop, um, I think will be kind of like a, a good step in the right direction for blockchain games. Your thoughts, Carlos? Um, I think that a lot of how we look at the merit of play to earn right now is informed by the games that are currently gathering the most attention. Um, and when I think about the labor loop or the earning loop that exists in these games, it's a very simple loop. And so it's natural for us to be skeptical of it. Um, I think it's fine early on for games to have excessive earning on tasks that probably shouldn't be earned as a way of bootstrapping player liquidity. Um, but ideally, um, ultimately, like earning is about, at, you know, things that you're delivering value to the game. Um, those things can still be boring activities if they have value. Um, and I think that they can also be fun activities to the extent, right? Like work, like I love my job. It's still a job, right? Like there's times that I wish I was on a beach and I'm, I'm, I'm at work, right? But like just because something is work doesn't mean that it can't be fun. And in truth, like these things tend to be a lot more balanced and to the extent that you have skills and, and, and sort of goals, you're ideally always trying to find a job that's like the closest to fun and work, like having fun and earning as you can. Um, and that comes as these experiences get more complex. And so right now it feels like in gaming, um, especially in, you know, like a, a big trend that we had in traditional games for the last couple of years um, starting when um, injury sent the big round into Roblox, whatever it was, two, two, two and a half years ago, um, was people started talking a lot about UGC, right? And and today, I think a lot of people, especially people in traditional games, people that are adverse into crypto or to crypto, um, will still talk a lot about UGC. And I think it's funny how two of the main themes that we have in gaming right now are on one side, user-generated content, and on the other side, it's crypto. 
When in fact, like that's the perfect example of people that are making money from doing things in games that you could better compensate and coordinate that activity with the token. And so when we think about um, the potential for complex economies, it is for the people that are currently building on Roblox to instead to build it on an, an open ecosystem that will monetize them more fairly or, or just monetize them more, or more liquid, whatever it may be, right? Um, and so as these games grow more complex, you have the opportunity for people to do jobs that we don't judge as much. Um, versus right now, I feel like a lot of the labor that exists in the um, in the play-to-earn ecosystem is basically the we're at the call center phase, right? So it's like you can't look at call centers as a division of, or as a segment of labor and say the telephone technology sucks, um, right? Like we have a technology that has a lot of good things with it, and it also has a labor or a labor layer that is like not the funnest for us sitting in in, in sort of you know big democracies with nice white collar jobs. But like for a lot of people, like they left something like way worse for that, or even like that is like not the most fun thing, but it puts food in the table. And so like, you have to look at these things, I think with a more realistic eye towards like what the real world economy is and acknowledging that there's always like, there are always jobs that are not fun. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, I think, I think, I think there is an opportunity to play and make money without having fun. I think that more complex experiences will create the opportunity for you to play or like make money with things that are more fun to you because you feel engaged in their actual challenges and, and whatever it is. Um, and then you can always just like pay or pay to play, right? Or, you know, just you're playing and you're spending money into the ecosystem. But all this to, to sort of bring back to the theme that I think we've been touching a lot here today, which is the deeper these ex- experiences get, the more real world like they get. And I think like we have to look at them with the eyes of people that are that are cognizant of the failures of any labor economy, which is there are jobs that have to be done that a lot of people don't want to do them. And they sort of go towards the people who have the least options. And the more options you have, the more you can do other jobs and make more money. And that's just the nature of capitalistic societies. Now, we can have a disagreement around whether the internet should be a post-scarcity world and whether we should allow those jobs to exist in the internet. Why shouldn't we just have the developer airdrop gold to everyone instead of creating an opportunity for people to mine that gold. Um, and I'd say it in, in, in two ways. Like one, um, actually I'll just focus on, on, on one argument. From a developer's point of view, um, friction is a very important place of creating social bonding, right? Like friction creates bonding. Having the miner that has to mine something that gives it to someone like like um, Eve, right? The people who are mining the asteroids that are giving to the transporters that are going into the ships, then, right, like everyone is part of this economy and everyone has a role and that friction that the game developer introduces in that ecosystem is 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 where guilds emerge out of, right? Of trying to, um, to um, consolidate resources and extract efficiencies out of an inefficient system, which translates into uh, more longevity in the game. It translates into more, um, to more engagement. It translates into people that find a role that works for their level of skill or their time commitment. And, and, and sort of build communities around it. And so like there is a legitimate role for friction, um, but also friction creates opportunities for monetization. And like all this stuff is actually quite nuanced, um, but the real world is also very, very nuanced. And I don't, I don't know that we should expect anything different. Um, my whole thesis for this gaming stuff is expect it to be more like the real world, not less. Mm-hmm. Fully agree. These are great conversations, guys. Thank you. Thank you for your insights. And so if you're building something like this, you know where to be. Bitch at bitcraft.vc. Hook us up. 
um, we'll gladly meet with you and uh, hear hear your story, hear your building, and uh, please, you know, get us excited. There's some keywords. Asymmetric gameplay is one. Um, more like the real world, not less. Is what Carlos Carlos likes. So there you go. You have some some tips there. Um, yeah, and with that, um, I really enjoyed this, guys. Carlos, Jamie, thanks for joining. And then, listener, if you enjoyed this as well, if I should have these dudes on more often, please let me know. Um, I'm I'm hanging out in in the Navic Discord, so you can you can uh, ping me there. Um, yeah, with that, um, this was the Metacast by Navic. We hope you enjoyed it, and we look forward to speaking to you in the next episode. Cheers.